You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, it is a blessing to be with you. I wanted to pray more specifically this morning. Last Saturday night, two dear Creeksiders went to be with Jesus. Um, Bob Reinhardt, who was a pastor here for decades, many of you know Bob. He was a pastor at Creekside for 21 years. He went to be with the Lord. And then uh, Mary Wilson, who was here for, gosh, decades, I think, as well, uh, survived by her husband, Jack, Jackie, her daughter, Bruce. They are just uh, pillars in our church who have both uh, completed their race after running hard. So we want to pray for their families uh, during this time and also celebrate their graduation from the land of the dying to the land of the living. So would you, would you join me in prayer now? And so, Lord, I I thank you um, for your word and uh, your promise. Precious in your sight are the death of your saints, Lord, that you keep your own. And we thank you for Bob and Mary. And, uh, Lord, they are a testament of faithfulness to you, God. And uh, for both of them, I just think of the welcome they will receive and all those they led to you who will welcome them, God into your gates, and uh, we are grateful for them. We pray for your comfort and ever-present help for their families in grief. Lord, thank you uh, that you are that ever-present help. Thank you that we do not grieve as those without hope. Uh, Lord, that we have a certain hope in the resurrection, not a wish, but a coming reality, Jesus, that because you were raised, they will be raised as well, Lord, and we have the hope of eternity with you. We pray uh, for, again, for the comfort of their families and, uh, Lord, uh, your care for them this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen. So, for the next three weeks, we are talking about a controversial subject, Uh, a subject that has been fraught with controversy in the church, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I haven't seen many miraculous things in my life, and yet I know God is capable of doing miracles. read about one a few weeks ago. Uh, When Barbara Comiskey Snyder was a teenager, she was diagnosed with an acute form of multiple sclerosis. Barbara's condition quickly deteriorated. For the next 16 years, she spent 75% of her time in a hospital. By the time she was 31, one diaphragm in her lung collapsed. The other was severely limited. The muscles in her intestines didn't work. Her bladder wouldn't function, and she hadn't walked for seven years. She was also almost completely blind. She needed a machine to breathe, a feeding tube to eat, a colostomy bag to expel waste. Her toes were continually pointed down. Her hands were flexed almost to her wrists. She was in a permanent fetal position. Barbara's doctor said she was, quote, one of the most hopelessly ill patients I've ever encountered. 
the age of 31, Barbara's medical team determined she only had a few weeks to live. They put her on hospice care. And while Barbara was preparing to die, a few friends from church came to visit her. They'd gathered hundreds of encouragement cards from people in the church and the surrounding community. And as they began to read these cards to Barbara, she heard over her left shoulder a booming, authoritative voice. It just said, my child, get up, walk. Barbara jumped out of bed. And suddenly she was standing. Her feet, which had been pointed down, were now resting on the floor. Her, her hands, which had been flexed in, were now resting at her sides. She could see. Not only that, but most astoundingly of all, her, her calf muscles had somehow regrown. And the atrophy in her lungs had been instantly, in her, in her uh, legs rather, had been instantly reversed. X-rays a few days later confirmed that the collapsed lung was healed, the breathing was normal, her bowels were functional, her multiple sclerosis was gone. Now that all took place in 1981, and for the last four decades, Barbara has lived free from all of those afflictions. The Bible is a thoroughly supernatural book. Thoroughly. Angels, demons, miracles, healings, exorcisms, voices from heaven, prophetic words, visions. The prophets have those experiences. The apostles have those experiences. Normal people have those experiences, like the Corinthians. But if I'm honest, here's the disconnect I feel. The Bible feels very supernatural. My life feels natural. Don't get me wrong, I have seen God do amazing things in my life, but primarily it has been through what we would call ordinary, not extraordinary means. He has worked, but it's been subtle, it's been behind the scenes, it has not been visibly supernatural, and as a result, I just don't expect supernatural stuff to happen. I don't. And it creates this disconnect because I can read a story of Jesus healing someone or an apostle healing someone and think, of course that happened. That stuff happens in the Bible. But then I can read a story like Barbara's, and even though that is one of the most well-attested miracles in modern history, I mean, she had a team of doctors who experienced this as well, who documented all of it, Something in me goes, eh, maybe. <laughs> maybe God did that. So why? Why do I harbor that skepticism? Because at some level, I just think, well, God used to work that way. But, but not anymore. Well, does he? Has, has God changed? No. His character never changes, and yet here's the complicating factor. God doesn't work exactly the same way in every situation. God can accomplish the same thing through different means. And you see this in the Bible. So you take the Exodus. How does God deliver his people? Miraculously. Visible miracles, judgments, plagues, parting a sea, his people get delivered. 
But then fast forward to the book of Esther, how does God deliver his people? He's not even mentioned. He's completely behind the scenes, and yet a deliverance is accomplished by God nonetheless. So as, as believers, where does that leave us? Should we expect the miraculous? Should we pursue the miraculous? And if so, how? Those are the questions we're going to be grappling with for the next three weeks as we look at the so-called miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Let's start in 1 Corinthians 14.1. Paul says this, Pursue love, that's what we talked about last week, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Paul tells the Corinthians, pursue love, that's your way of life. And as you pursue love, seek the gifts. And it's clear Paul's talking about the gifts he mentioned back in chapter 12. Now, some of the gifts are ordinary, for lack of a better word. Teaching, administration, service. But other gifts are manifestly extraordinary. They're miraculous. Paul gives us a list of them in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 12. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. One is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Paul is talking here about manifestations of the Spirit, things we would see and go, the Spirit is clearly at work. Paul talks about knowledge or revelatory gifts, the utterance of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecy. I don't know how those are distinguished, to be honest with you. But all of them have something to do with a human report of divine revelation, that God communicates something, a, a word, a vision to a believer, and then they communicate that to the church or to another believer. It's some human report of divine revelation from God. Paul, gives other, Paul says other believers have the power to distinguish spirits, and I think Paul is talking there about the ability to weigh the legitimacy of that speech. So someone will say, I've had a revelation from God, or I have a word of knowledge. Some people have that gift. Other people have the ability to weigh its legitimacy, to, to know from the Spirit either that's from God or that's from another spirit, or that's just from your own imagination. Paul says the Spirit gives other believers the gift of faith. And by faith, Paul isn't talking about saving faith because we all have that gift. Every Christian has the power to trust in Jesus for salvation. Paul's talking about a kind of supernatural faith that, that comes upon a person and enables them to believe God for the impossible, to, to pray for the impossible so that it comes to pass. Others receive the gift of miraculous powers. That might be some wonder they can work or the ability to cast out a demon. Then Paul talks about gifts of healings. Those words are both plural, actually. Gifts of healing. So in a variety of situations, the power to pray and see someone delivered from sickness or affliction. Finally, Paul mentions tongues and Paul is talking about some kind of spirit-inspired speech that is unintelligible both to the speaker 
and to the hearer. And that language can be expressed, Paul says, privately to God as prayer, but the tongues can also be expressed publicly. But if tongues are spoken publicly, Paul says, they have to be made intelligible, and so other people have the gift of what? Interpreting tongues. The power to understand that speech and make it intelligible and helpful to the church. So there's nine miraculous gifts there. No one possesses all of them, but Paul assumes that all the Corinthians do, or at least could, possess some of them. How do we approach these gifts? Three points to consider today as we talk about practicing the miraculous. First, perceiving the miraculous. We have to go back and just ask, what are gifts? Because if we don't understand what a gift is and what it's not, we're not going to understand what it means to pursue them. Second, I'm going to answer the million-dollar question. Should we desire the gifts? Should we seek prophecy, healing, tongues, all of these things? And I will definitively answer that and end the controversy in the church today. That was a joke. I'm glad you caught that. Third and finally, we'll talk about practicing the gifts. So if these are available, how would you actually practice them? And we'll begin with what I think is the most uncontroversial miraculous gift, which is healing. It's the one that most people can agree that, that God heals today, and we'll talk about that and how to practice that. So let's start with perception and the foundational question, what are spiritual gifts? Paul says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. We've talked about them, but it's an important matter to go back and define them properly. And in a moment, you'll see why. Here, I think, is the problem we encounter when we talk about spiritual gifts. Someone will read through Paul's lists, and the first question they ask is, okay, which one of these am I good at? What are my strengths? And the assumption is that a spiritual gift is kind of like a natural ability. And, and that's understandable because in English, the word gift is closely related to this idea of giftedness, right? So if I hear a five-year-old effortlessly playing Chopin, I say, wow, she has a gift which means she's what? Gifted. Unusually gifted at a certain thing. Naturally gifted. And it's easy to assume that whatever a spiritual gift is, it's something I'm comfortable doing or have a natural aptitude to do. Does that make sense? So if I like teaching, I, like I'm, I, I have no problem sharing opinions with people. I talk all the time. I have a natural aptitude for it. I must have what? The spiritual gift of teaching, right? Uh, if evangelism comes naturally to me, I must have the gift of evangelism. If I'm uncomfortable sharing my faith, well, maybe I don't have the gift, right? Someone else has to do it. Here's the problem. This is not how Paul talks about gifts. They are not identical to your natural aptitudes or strengths. For example, Paul says he was given the gift of being an apostle. Apostleship is his spiritual gift, was that a natural aptitude for Paul? Well, he says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he came to the Corinthians in weakness and fear and much trembling. In fact, he goes on in 2 Corinthians to say that his apostleship is characterized not by strength, but by what? Weakness. When Paul thinks about his own gift of apostleship, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Who could do this? 
Doesn't seem like there's much of a natural aptitude there, does it? So, so there's a reason to doubt that a spiritual gift is identical to a natural ability. But if it's not, what is it? Well, the answer is complicated. Okay, so I'm about to make a mess of things here. But I promise there's, there's a point to this. Several weeks ago, my dad talked about his spiritual gift in two ways. He said it can be an ability. It can be a ministry. A ministry assigned to us. And that's critical for us to keep in mind. Here's the first point to realize about spiritual gifts. Fundamentally, what is a spiritual gift? It is a ministry assignment that God gives each of us. When Paul uses the language of gift, the primary thing he's talking about is a calling to serve. The gift, I like the way Greg said it, it's not so much something God gives to us, but through us. We are the gift to someone else. We're the messenger. We're the one called to do the ministry. And Paul gives hints in a number of places that that's his understanding of spiritual gifts. For example, Romans 12, he compares the gifts to functions, activities. He's talking about the actual thing you're doing. In that same passage, he talks about spiritual gifts as the grace given to each of us. And whenever Paul uses that phrase, grace given, in his letters, he's talking about either his own assignment to do ministry or the ministry that someone else is assigned. So this is very important to get clear. The primary thing a gift is, is a ministry assignment that God will call you to do. Here's where it gets complicated. All of the gifts are ministries. Some could also be described as spirit-empowered abilities. You got it? All of them are ministries. Some gifts, like the ones we just read about, are also entail a spirit-empowered ability. But here's what you need to see. Who gives the ability? The spirit. It is a manifestation of the spirit, not of my strength finder survey of things I'm good at. Now, at this point, you might be saying, Jeff, why are you fussing so much over the semantics of this word? Here's why. If I view my spiritual gifts primarily as sort of strength finder for ministry, I'm much less likely to take the risk of actually ministering. Do you know why? Ministry is never comfortable. It's always scary. No one has a natural aptitude for these things. The gift is the calling to serve. And as I step into what God's calling me to do, I trust that then he'll empower me to do it. You see the difference? Here's how it changes how I look at ministry. Rather than starting by looking in at my competencies, I look out at God's opportunities and say, okay, where is God calling me to serve? And wherever it is, I trust that what he's calling me to do, he will empower me to do because that's what God does. Does that make sense? Primarily ministry assignments. That's what he's talking about. Why is that important when we talk about the spiritual gifts, or the miraculous gifts rather? Here's why. Is any of this going to feel natural to any of us? No. I've never felt like I'm a natural prophesier. <laughs> I just have a natural aptitude for healing. I just know I got some ability. To, no, I don't. And, and because this feels, let's be honest, weird, for most of us, weird, especially in the post-enlightenment, scientific, natural West. It just feels weird. I think I'm not that kind of Christian. I know they exist somewhere, but I'm not that kind of Christian who does that spirity stuff, right? 
are to think, well, maybe God doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. But if I view the gifts as primarily ministry callings, it changes things. Here's why. God might call me into a situation where someone needs healing. And then he's calling me to maybe practice that gift. Or someone is confused and I have something to say to them that is from God and I'm desperately dependent on him to do it, even if it doesn't feel natural. Does that make sense? That's the first point. There are assignments. Second point, some gifts, some assignments are long-term, but others are situational. Situational. See, there's a tendency to view spiritual gifts as sort of permanent features of your personality, right? So I have the gift of teaching, so I'll just always be a teacher. Now, there are long-term gifts, long-term ministries you could be a part of, but if you view them primarily as ministries, sometimes your ministry, your gift is just going to be one moment, right? Situational, just you need to minister to a person in the moment and you're relying on God to do it, which is why Paul says earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. See, he's telling you to desire the power to do something you don't currently have the power to do. Does that make sense? It's clear throughout 1 Corinthians 14 that the way to earnestly seek or desire the gifts is just to pray. Pray, God, give me what I need in this situation. If supernatural ministry is needed, give it to me. That's what he is saying. We should earnestly desire the power of the Spirit to do what we cannot do in the natural. So, so the truth is, I don't know all the gifts I have or what God is calling me to do because I don't know what situations I'm in yet. And here's what's challenging about that. My bias is to operate out of competence and not out of dependence on God. My first bias is to rely on my own problem solving and not on prayer. And often I won't even go to the Lord because I just assume that things are in my power to figure out. I've probably told you this before. I remember, like, my dad doesn't think this way, so I have to learn from him all the time in this. I remember playing disc golf one time with him. And I, uh, I just chucked a disc into a tree and it was lodged in there. And I've played enough disc golf to know there's only two options in this situation. I can get a rock and throw it, or I can climb the tree. Apparently, my dad thought there was a third option. He just walks under the tree, right where the disc is. He looks up at the disc, he sees it lodged there, and he just bows his head like this. And I kid you not, the disc just falls <laughs> at his feet. And he says, Lord, thank you. He says, here's your disc. <laughs> I'm like, what manner of man is this, right? I was like, what? I, I mean, that has never happened in 30 years of playing disc golf. That has never happened. Now, apparently that could be the gift of faith here. As silly as that sounds, but I would never expect the Lord to work that way, so I just don't even ask, right? I, I just don't expect God to do those things. And so in any situation that we come into with a person, with a problem, is it immediately, okay, what do I know to do to fix this? Or God, might, what might you want to do in this situation? God, I'm inviting you to do something that I don't have the power to do. Just see what happens. He might do something, he might not, but might as well check, right? Gifts or ministries, sometimes they're situational. Perhaps we're going to be called into situations to practice the miraculous. So it's so important that we get beyond this idea of natural aptitudes because Paul wants us to operate out of a completely different paradigm. Does that make sense? 
That's first thing in perceiving the gifts. But here's the million-dollar question. Should the gifts be pursued? And here I'm talking specifically about the nine things we just listed. Are those gifts still in operation? Are they still available? Well, this is an issue where Christians disagree, and not just like the mature Christians versus the immature Christians. This is like sincere, Bible-loving, spirit-filled Christians really disagree over this. Paul is clear. There's a day that's going to come when the gifts will cease, the miraculous gifts. We talked about this last week, right? He said... 1 Corinthians 13, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, and there, the word of knowledge, supernatural knowledge, it will pass away. Paul says that there is a day when these miraculous gifts will no longer be necessary. And God in his sovereignty will bring them to an end. When is that time? Paul says in the text, it's when the perfect comes. And when the perfect comes, at that point, we will know God fully, even as we are fully known. And you look at that language and how it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's clear that Paul is talking there about the return of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, these miraculous gifts will no longer be necessary because we'll just be living in the miraculous. The air we breathe will be supernatural. We won't need a foretaste of any of these things because we'll have the presence of the King of Heaven in our midst. Okay, so all Christians agree they end, but what role do they play now in the church age? And this is where Christians disagree, and there's basically two camps. This is an oversimplification, but you got to oversimplify things to understand them. First, a, a cessationist argument would say that, that all or most of the miraculous gifts ceased sometime after the time of Jesus and the apostles. So, so the gifts that Paul lists here in verses 7 through 11, some believers would say these played a formative role for the church, but they don't play a normative role now in the church. They were necessary to establish God's church on earth and verify the gospel message. So, so for this group, they would see prophecy as infallible speech directly from God, divinely inspired speech. That's what prophecy is. And so this gift of prophecy talked about here, the apostles would have it. Maybe some prophets would have it. But once we have a completed canon of scripture, once the New Testament is done, once the church is established, these gifts that reveal God's truth for God's church, they're, they're no longer needed. So they played a formative role, not necessarily a normative role. And, and so things like prophecy and tongues, which is related to prophecy, as we'll see, they're, they're no longer needed to verify or establish the teaching of the church. They're, they're the rocket booster that kind of gifts the ship into orbit. But we don't have modern-day apostles or prophets like we had back then, so the gifts have ceased. Conversely, continuationism, don't you love these terms, is the view that all or most of the miraculous gifts continue until Christ's return. And, and so this side would say on the basis of 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul says here, that the gifts end at the second coming. And so the role they play, they play some role throughout the church age. 
We don't know what it is, but they do play a role. They didn't just help to establish the church. They still build up the church even now. So these gifts in some form are still accessible to Christians. So how do we do this? How do we deal with this? First, I think it's important to frame this issue in terms of its doctrinal importance. Okay? That's the first issue that's important to establish here. At Creekside, we talk about three levels of doctrinal importance. There's first level issues, second level issues, third level issues, okay? First level are things that make Christianity Christianity, okay? Uh, the Trinity, one God, three persons. The incarnation, Jesus became a human being for us and our salvation. The substitutionary death of Jesus, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The authority of scripture, we'd say that makes Christianity Christianity. You, you take one of those out, it no longer ceases to be the thing. So we hold those views like this. Closed hand. No agree to disagree, right? Hills to die on. I can give you more metaphors, but anyway. <laughs> there are second order level issues where churches will divide because you can't have two views among the leadership of a church and have a functioning church. Baptism and communion. Who are we going to baptize and give communion to and why, right? You got to agree on that or you have chaos. Who's going to lead? Who's qualified to lead? How do we pick leaders? You got to agree on that and, and churches have to come along. So we, we'd say at Creekside, we hold those positions, but with an open hand. We say that, that you can be in fellowship here as long as you, you can agree or uh, disagree agreeably and not make those an issue of dispute or contention in the church. Then there are third-level issues where sometimes nine Christians have ten opinions about these kinds of issues where you throw up your hands and go, Christians are going to disagree. I would say that in general, things like the miraculous gifts would fall into a third-level issue where different sincere Christians can be on a continuum of belief about how much these things are available today. Here's what that means. Where we go in the next three weeks, none of this should be a dividing matter for the church. We should be able to hold our views open-handedly, agree to disagree, and not make these a source of division, dispute, or disunity. And that's important because they have been a tremendous source of disunity in the church. Because on extremes of both positions you get people firing back at each other and saying really awful things about each other, okay? So on the extremes of charismaticism, you get a view where there, you have to have some second experience of the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, and if you don't have that, you might not really be a Christian at all. Again, this is the most extreme views. And if you don't speak in tongues, you might not be a Christian at all. Now, Paul would say, do you all speak in tongues? no. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians 12. So it can't be the evidence that you're a believer. Love, faith working through love, as he's been clear, is the evidence you're a believer. So that view is extreme. On the cessationist view, you can get a side that's so extreme that says there is no kind of overtly supernatural ministry in the church today, and anything that passes for that, therefore, is demonic. It's the wrong spirit at work. So we will be skeptical or assume the worst of any manifestation of the spirit today. Now, you can see how the extremes can be very divisive, right? We're not going to live in the extremes at Creekside. This is a church where cessationists and continuationists should be able to sit at the same table. And you say, okay, Jeff, that's great. Let's all hold hands. But what are you? <laughs> where do you land? 
and I am a continuationist in theory and a cessationist in practice. That's where I am. So Jeff, you're inconsistent and you're absolutely right. I am. Here's where I've landed for most of my life. I think the, the New Testament assumption is clear that the miraculous gifts, there's no reason to assume they would not be in operation in the church. Because God brings them to an end at the second coming. That's when he brings them to an end. So I am open to the possibility that God can work in any of those ways. That doesn't mean it's going to look like the early church. For instance, I, I don't think there's any formal apostles today. Okay? Because there's capital A apostles and there's lowercase a apostles. There's a ministry of apostleship, which we'd call being a missionary. It's just a ministry of trailblazing for the gospel. Capital A apostles, I'm hearing directly from God and I'm going to give authoritative church teaching for all times. If people start talking like that, run. Okay? And there are people who talk like that. That's a danger because there are not capital A apostles. The capital A apostles saw Jesus, okay, physically. That's the, that's the New Testament criteria. So all that to say, I think there could be lowercase a apostles who trailblaze for the gospel, lowercase p prophets. I certainly think healing is a gift available today. However, I will also say this, the gifts are something that the Spirit sovereignly gives. So they can't be manufactured. And that's the danger is that we just fake the work of the Holy Spirit because we're so desirous of seeing him do something supernatural or manipulate or pressure to kind of just force this to happen. We can't force it to happen. The Spirit gives the gift sovereignly. He's sovereign over doing it. Conversely, Paul says, eagerly desire the gifts. And it's clear he's talking about the miraculous gifts. You know what I've never really done in my Christian life? Earnestly desire the miraculous gifts. My bias has been way toward the side of just, well, God will do it. So I'm not going to pray for it or ever expect it, really. He'll just do it. I don't think that's the biblical balance. I think the biblical balance is to love as my primary goal. And underneath that, eagerly seek the gifts. Here's, here's why. The primary purpose of the gifts, the miraculous gifts, is not to verify the gospel message or give authoritative teaching to the church. The primary purpose of the miraculous gifts is just that the church would be built up. That's what Paul says in the letter. Whatever builds up. And how often does the church need to be built up? All the time until Jesus comes back and until we reach mature manhood, the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. So I think these gifts will always be needed in part to build up the church. And I think the reason I'm reluctant to seek them or practice them more has to do with the fact that I am still conditioned to think in a very secular, naturalistic, rationalistic way and be skeptical of what the Spirit can do. And that to me reveals far more that I'm just a Christian in the West than that I have a biblical view. Because that view is by far in the minority related to my brothers and sisters around the world. Um, so that's where I land. We'll be talking more about how to practice them, but let's just start briefly with healing. How do you practice healing? Because I think this is one we can, most of us would agree, yeah, God still heals people today. But does God give the gift of healing? And if so, how? 
as quickly as I can, theology of healing, practice of healing, and then cautions regarding healing. Healing, first of all, physical healing from affliction in the New Testament is a sign of God's kingdom, his reign breaking into our present fallen existence. Why does Jesus heal the sick? To show the kingdom of God is here which means God's reign is pushing back darkness because God did not create a world in which people were supposed to contract horrible diseases. That was not his original picture of the world. And God is now restoring the image of God and people by healing and restoring them to health. That was one of the signs that Jesus was the Messiah, that he could heal in an unparalleled way. And it's a sign still of God's kingdom breaking through and a sign of the reality of the gospel message. Jesus healed, which verified the good news of the kingdom. All of it went together. Here's an assumption I think we could make based on that. Where are we going to see healing in the world? Well, if you look at the Bible, often healing happens in frontier missionary environments where the gospel's penetrating for the first time to verify that Jesus is real and he's superior to the gods you've been worshiping. And that's why so much of the growth around the world comes from miraculous healing. Non-believers getting healed. I read a great story this week about a man in Suriname, which is in South America. He was resistant to the gospel. He was part of a people group that was resistant to the gospel. He went to an evangelistic service there and, and he came in and his whole life, he'd been paralyzed on one side of his body. And, and he was not happy to be there. His friends dragged him in. And he said, look, your religion is garbage. And my religion is garbage too. Because I've prayed to all these gods for years for healing on the right side of my body. And they've done nothing. And now you're asking me to pray to Jesus. And the minute he said the word Jesus, his hand shot up. Right? <laughs> And the right side of his body was completely healed. At what? The name of Jesus. And he immediately got up and grabbed the mic and said, you're not going to believe what happened. And they were like, actually, we will believe what happened, right? We just saw it. Now, that hasn't happened at Creekside yet. Right? Yet. I wanted to. But, but that's pretty common, those kind of stories, in places where the gospel has not yet penetrated. Why? Because it confirms the sign of the kingdom. So that helps to shape our expectations about the places God does this, but it's not just a sign of the healing of the kingdom. Healing is also a demonstration of God's profound concern for what? The body. The body. Creation is good. The body is good. God does not just care about your soul. And as Christians, we've got to understand that God cares about the body. Why does Jesus heal in the New Testament? What's the number one reason? Because he has compassion. He just has compassion on afflicted people because God cares about the body. And so we should not accept this passive resignation as Christians that, that sickness is always just a teacher and a tutor and a thing to help me grow in Christ. Of course it can be that. And of course God could be using that. But pray for healing. Because God's concerned about your body. And ultimately, redemption is the redemption of the soul and the body. That's why Jesus spent a lot of time healing. Third point in our theology of healing, given the great diversity of healing gifts in the church, we should assume that the effectiveness of healing prayer will vary from Christian to Christian. What do I mean? 
Paul talks here about gifts, plural, of healings, plural. Both words are plural, which means the Spirit might give someone the power to heal or heal through them once. It could be a certain kind of disease that they're able to heal. It could be at a various time they're able to heal our situation. But I think often we think either there's no gift of healing. We just all kind of generically pray for healing. Or we have this skewed view that there are people who are healers, right? And they're kind of like Jesus on earth now. And they can just walk into hospitals and empty them. That person doesn't exist. Healing is a gift sovereignly given by God, but it means that some people might receive this gift more often than others. It could vary from Christian to Christian. So just because God hasn't answered your prayers for healing doesn't mean he might not be working through a different person, just like there are other gifts. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the practice of healing. First, the motivation. Healing must be motivated by a genuine love for the person in affliction has to be. Why? Because Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gift. If I don't love people, I'm probably not going to see God heal people. I just assume that. Healing can be a selfish thing for me. I just want God to prove that he's alive again or working. It could be more about my own faith and confirming it. Rather than this person is affliction and I want to see them delivered because Jesus, I want your compassion in my heart for that person. So you got to really work on loving people to want to pray for healing. That's, that's the first point. Second point this is this. God desires our active participation in healing, both from the person offering the prayer and the one receiving it. You see this throughout the Bible. Jesus will ask, right, do you believe? He wants to see that they believe that he's able and willing to heal. Now, faith isn't always the precondition of healing. Sometimes Jesus just heals people, right? Like John 5. But most often, it is the precondition. Jesus wants to see that the person desires healing and is coming to them. And then for people healing, there are practices. The Bible talks about anointing with oil and laying on of hands as you pray. And we get kind of weirded out by that maybe. Some Christians do. Why can't I just pray remotely, right? Why can't we just leave it in the small group, right? Because that's all we pray about in small groups. <laughs> heal this, heal that. Like, can we just pray? Why do we have to lay hands on people? You know why? Because could God do this himself? Yes, he does. But God wants to use you. God could appear to everyone in a dream, but God wants you to open your mouth and preach the gospel too. He wants your active participation. And so laying hands on people, anointing them, they are all ways of saying that I, by faith, am participating in what's happening with an expectation that God can and will do this. He's sovereign, but I'm praying in anticipation that he will. That leads to the next point in the practice of healing. Healing can be partial or a process, so persistence is necessary. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Jesus heals a blind man in stages. That's Mark 8. In, in Luke 17, the lepers come to him for healing. They have to go and present themselves. And as they are going, they're healed. Healing can be a process. So don't stop seeking. Don't stop 
praying. Remember, as we're doing this, we have no authority to heal. Jesus has the authority to heal. We bear his name. It's his authority as his representatives. We don't have it apart from Jesus. It's only as his representative. So we pray in the name of Jesus and we ask in the name of Jesus and be persistent. Be persistent. Don't be resigned. We know it's God's will to heal. He might not, but his revealed will is to heal. And it's up to him if he decides not to. Our job is to ask. Not to say, oh God, do whatever you were going to do anyway. He will do whatever he was going to do anyway, but he wants you to pray for healing. That's the point. So pray in faith, expect people to happen, and then invite the person to participate. What doubts do you have about this? Do you believe he can heal? Confess those to God now. And you keep doing it. I don't have any other magical tricks other than that, because the Bible, that's what it gives. But you keep praying and you keep praying, and I imagine people who experience answers to prayer, they're the people you want to ask to. How have you seen God work through your healing ministry? Because he does. Here are two cautions and then we're done. First caution about the ministry of healing, God's extraordinary means of healing are not in tension with his ordinary means of healing. They should be sought together. What do I mean? The Bible never presents an either or picture of healing where it's like, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor, I'm just going to pray. <laughs> okay? Paul says to Timothy, right? You've got gut health issues, drink some wine. He doesn't just say, I'm going to pray for you remotely. Do both. Do both because both are graces of God, supernatural grace and common grace. Pursue both at the same time and God could work through ordinary means or extraordinary means. They're not to be pitted against each other. And both are ultimately answers from God because God's the one giving the answer. N next caution about healing is this. While there are reasons God does not heal, we should not assume to know those reasons. Sometimes God doesn't heal because people don't believe God will heal them. I mean, that's clear as day from the New Testament. That's not for me to know. <laughs> you weren't believing enough. In fact, that's one of the cruelest things you can say to someone when they're not experiencing healing because you don't know. Sometimes it's a lack of faith. Sometimes it's unrepentant sin. And they're under discipline until they repent of that sin. Often I have no idea. I shouldn't guess. And sometimes it is just the mystery of God's providence that he doesn't heal us yet. Yet. And we just don't have a good answer. And I think that's why this is a painful thing to talk about. Because the unanswered prayers can lead to some real vexation and trouble in our souls. If you can do that for Barbara Comiskey Snyder, why can't you do that for the person in my life? I know you're able. Why won't you do it? And I think this is where we have to root ourselves in the truth of the gospel because our prayers in Christ for healing are never simply God answering no. God's just saying not yet. Not yet. Because the truth of the gospel is that Jesus died in his body and was raised in a body that we would be delivered body, soul, spirit forever. So guess what? You're going to get healed. It's inevitable. His, his stripes heal your soul now. 
His resurrection will heal your body in eternity. And if he grants healing in this life, it's just a foretaste of what is to come. But if you trust in Christ, you will be healed forever and put right with him. But the healing we most need is trusting in Jesus. That's the promise. And that's the gospel, that we have a God who created a world, and even though we sinned, he didn't say, that's a terrible thing that I'm just going to discard. He said, it's a damaged thing that needs to be redeemed. And he loved him so much, loved us so much, that he gave his own son to redeem it, so that we'll live in healed, renewed bodies forever. That's the hope. Let's pray. So we thank you for the great hope we have in you, Jesus in a world truly where everything sad comes untrue. A world where our souls are put right, our psyches are put right, our relationships are put right, our society is put right, and our bodies, Lord, are put right to suffer this affliction no more. And so we thank you for that hope, Lord. We trust in faith that you can heal, but we praise you because you will heal everything. Lord. We set our hope on that and we ask that we would be attentive to the times you are calling us to pray for healing in the lives of others. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the great physician. You are the one who heals us, body, soul, and spirit to restore us to God. Pray this in your name. Amen.